What you are about to hear is not, 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 not a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens, coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. 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 Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning, and if you listened to our first few episodes, then you know that over the last few months, my friend Justin Higgins and I and our friends have convened hundreds of conversations, sometimes more than once per day, with up to 30,000 live listeners and participants, where we all hear live and direct from people in the news, in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. We're just now starting to release recorded portions of our live conversations for the first time, and we're grateful to you for joining us. In our last episode, we spoke with Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence of Michigan, and today we're very excited to release part of another conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with another Congresswoman from Michigan, Debbie Dingell. Over the past 100 years, but especially since World War II, the U.S. and global economies have shifted in tandem leading to massive disruptions in some people's lives, creating massive opportunities in others, and above all, creating a state of constant change where industries evolve in unexpected ways. In the U.S., fewer places are more central to this story than the state of Michigan. The industry there played a core role in carrying the U.S. and its allies to victory in World War II and in making automobiles affordable for a large number of people, and the state itself is an important political bellwether, It's almost evenly divided between Democrat and Republican voters, races there are highly competitive, and discussions within parts of Michigan are often very representative of the national dialogue, especially around elections. In our last episode and this episode, we're hearing directly from elected representatives there about how things are going in this core part of the country, what their constituents care about, and by extension, where they think the country should go in terms of policy. Congresswoman Dingell served as a senior executive at General Motors for over 30 years before being elected to Congress. She shared a lot of real-time insight about big pieces of legislation currently in front of Congress. We had great audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it. As always, if you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live or pm101.club. They both work, and we'll get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Congresswoman, I want to start off with something a little bit light, and then we will get into the meat and potatoes of the discussion. Um, How did you and Marjorie Taylor Greene become best friends, and why do you get along? (laughs) You know, um, I actually am somebody who believes in working with everybody. I do try to reach across the aisle. You know, you can disagree agreeably. Uh, she is somebody that does not subscribe to the golden rule, treat others as you would have them treat you. Uh, I was not planning on uh, what happened last Friday happening. Uh, quite frankly, you know, I tried to um, 
be respectful, treat each other civilly, but she had been on the Capitol steps uh, spewing vitriolicness and hate for some time. Uh, we did not respond to her when she was at the top of the steps, but the, uh, the speaker was going to have a press conference at the bottom of the steps. There were 150 Democrats. She was trying to disrupt it. And I just, I don't like bullies. Uh, I don't like bullies. And she is one of those people that tries to bully people. And all I did, unfortunately, it did go a bit viral, more than a little. Uh, I, you know, can't you be civil? Why do you have to treat your colleagues that way? So uh, it, it, you know, we should try to treat each other civilly. It wasn't my better moment, but I have learned in my lifetime to stand up to bullies. And I've been bullied more than once in my life. And at some point, you just have to stand up. Getting into kind of the the real issues here, the bipartisan infrastructure package was negotiated to address some of our nation's critical infrastructure needs while also being politically palatable to not only moderates and progressives, but also Republicans in the Senate. So um, what kinds of policy issues got left out of this package that you want to see in the reconciliation bill? And also kind of the two-parter of this, was it always your understanding that these two bills were linked or has that? So the president's vision that he laid out when he got elected was the combination of these two bills. We've always needed the Build Back Better bill. Let me talk. And I have never, I think that whenever you can try to bring people together, you can find common ground. That's a good thing to do. And we need what's in that bipartisan bill. We need to fix our roads and bridges. If you're from Michigan and have our governor, you would say you need to fix the damn roads and bridges. Forgive me if I offended anybody. Uh, there are many things that I care about in that bill. I stood with the president at the White House in August. I helped get the automotive companies and the UAW to agree with the environmental community. I've spent a lot of time on this, that we would try to get sales of automobiles to be 50% electric vehicles by the year 2030. But to be successful, those vehicles have to be affordable. Those batteries have to um, have the range and we got to build out the infrastructure. There's some money, but not nearly enough in the BIF is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The short name for it is BIF. We need to, if you're from Michigan, you understand what lead and water pipes does to children. There was a new study out last week from Pediatric JAMA that says that 50% of the children whose blood has been tested in the United States have lead in their blood. We need to get the lead out of pipe, out of our pipelines, or out of our uh, what's going into people's homes. There's not nearly enough money in the BIF, as passed by the Senate, to do that completely and get it out of all pipes in this country. The BIF bill would bring internet to both urban areas and rural areas. And unfortunately, the pandemic has shown us how there is a, um, there are too many areas that don't have access. And again, it disproportionately impacts communities of color or um, that are disadvantaged. And how do we do that? So those are in the bipartisan bill. We need them. There are lots of other things in there. It's not a perfect bill. There are things in there that I don't like, but we need it and we've got to pass it. But the Build Back Better 
has money that would take the lead out of all of our pipes. It would build out the infrastructure more. It would address child care. Three million women have left the workforce because of a lack of both child care and senior care, uh, long-term care. I am the author with Bob Casey of home and community-based care. So there are almost a million seniors in this country that are on waiting lists just trying to get be able to stay in their homes. Nine out of 10 Americans want to stay in their own homes when they get older. Everybody who's worked hard, earned a living, should have a safe and secure retirement. Um, we need to address many health care issues. Uh, so we need to make the cost of prescription drugs lower. That would um, be in that bill. It would expand uh, affordable care so that in some states where Medicaid wasn't expanded and doesn't give access to people to have health care, it would expand that. I'm somebody that would like to see hearing, vision, and dental covered um, as part of Medicare because I know there are too many people not getting it. So, and by the way, the definition of infrastructure is system, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is system or processes that help a country, a corporation, a community operate. And all of these are things that help us operate. They're the care side of infrastructure. Thank you for that, Congressman. There's been a rather big divide playing out on national TV in your own party between some moderates, some progressives, mm -hmm. and specifically the negotiation, the top line number for this uh, Build Back Better bill was originally $3.5 trillion. And President Joe Biden has come out saying it won't be $3.5 trillion. Uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, has come out saying he doesn't want to go more than $1.5 trillion. Uh, take us behind the scenes a little bit. And how has these two different uh, sides, the $3.5 trillion, the $1.5 trillion, how have they changed negotiations over the last Well, I would actually say several things. One is that people... There's an old saying that people with weak stomachs, Will Rogers said this, with weak stomachs shouldn't watch sausage or laws being made. I think that for a while, legislation means people talk to each other. They come together. They hear people's different perspectives. Uh, I did believe that there was too much attention being given to two senators. Now, unfortunately, the reality is of the United States Senate that it's 50-50 and every vote does matter there. Uh, a lot of time has been spent with the Senator from Arizona and the Senator from West Virginia, but there are 48 other states and a lot of territories that wanna make sure their voices are being heard. And in the House, there are 435 members, Republicans and Democrats who have constituents that have concerns and things that they want to make sure are being considered. I think for too long, there was, I mean, even if you were in the Democratic caucus of the House, people wanted to know what was going on, what was being discussed, what were what were people looking at? Uh, and I think people were talking, but what I've seen, I actually look at what's happened as the last week uh, as real progress. First of all, Democrats are united that failure is not an option. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. People have been trying to fix our roads and bridges for decades. 
our infrastructure is comparable to any third world country in the world. That is not something to be proud of. Our bridges are falling falling down. Our roads are in serious disrepair. We need to, it is time that our children not drink, you know, water with lead in it anymore. Um, so we ha- failure is just not an option, and we're united on that. Um, some people wanted to see one bill and then hope for the other. Others people were like, the president's vision was build back better. They were both part of that that vision. We now ex- know that the president does want both of those bills together, and we are working to get both of those bills written and passed in the next few weeks. So I'm curious, and a lot of members of Congress dodge this question, so I'd really appreciate if you didn't dodge it, but um, what is maybe one priority? You understand that this legislation needs to get through for the president's agenda. There's uncertainty in 2022, but in the Build Back Better bill, the, the one that started out with $3.5 trillion for everybody in the audience. Can you give me a policy red line for you that must be in this legislation, regardless of the sunset period and how long it's in there for? Is there anything that when you look at this bill, you look at your constituents that you say, you know what, pardon my language, damn it, I'm putting my foot down. This needs to be in that piece of legislation. So, again... I don't know where it's going to go. I very much care, just as Joe Manchin is fighting for the people of West Virginia. My state's an auto state. I also know that transportation contributes 30% of the carbon emissions and global climate is real. There is nobody that cannot acknowledge that global climate's real. And my state alone, we've had my district, as some who are on this podcast will tell you, has had eight floods since the end of June. We have to do something about climate change. So uh, there needs to be enough money in there that's going to build out the EV infrastructure. So uh, 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 turning over and moving towards electric vehicles, we have to make sure the infrastructure's there. I really do want to get the lead out of pipes, water pipes. Is there an amount of money that I suspect? I don't know. It's a pretty strong issue for me. And home and health care is a very, very critical issue to me. Uh, I lived, I know how broken the long-term care system is in this country. We don't realize how broken it is. But I, you know, today I met with the president with a group of other people and he asked us and listened to what our priorities are. And I, I will also tell you what, and there are a number of other subjects that really matter to me. Congress is coming together. And we're not going to agree on everything. I do believe that we're going to get some of these priorities taken care of. And we've got to ensure that we begin to make progress on all of these areas. So I want to get into another aspect of your legislating philosophy for the audience. When trying to cut down on the cost of a bill, there's really one or two, one of two ways to go about it. Either cut out programs or you reduce the length that those programs are active. Um, What is your legislating philosophy? Do you think it's better to have more programs that have future uncertainty, or is it better to have a few staple programs that are much more certain over the next 10 years? And what would you tell your friend, uh, Speaker Pelosi, what path would you tell? 
You know, I actually think they're both paths that you can look at, and it can be a combination. There's some programs that, you know, like supporting the Affordable Care Act and making sure that every American, that's right now how we are insuring. I would go for Medicare for all. It's clearly not going to happen this session of Congress, and you know, policies develop over years. But I do think the Affordable Care Act, which every, many people were denouncing uh, not that long ago, now has become something that the American people need, want, and has expanded people's access to being able to go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor. Um, and we're looking at making that permanent. There are other programs that if you don't have the funding to do them for a longer period of time, but once people see their success, so I'm willing to take a combination of both of those. And that's an acceptable way to do it. That's the nuanced way to look at it, which is normally uh, the right way. So, folks, this is Politics and Media with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, Michigan's 12th District Democrat. She serves on the House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the House Committee on Natural Resources. So, obviously, both deal with energy. And for you in the audience, energy and commerce also deals with health care. Um, in addition to all of that, she's also a senior whip. So that means the leadership team, Speaker Pelosi and her leadership team, picked Congresswoman Diggle because she can count votes. She can get things done. And that's why it's so important to have this discussion with her amidst the uncertainty that we see in um, the current negotiations over the Build Back Better budget bill. Um, so I wanted to touch on prescription drug prices, Congresswoman, because you said that this is a vital issue for you. It's a vital issue for your caucus. But I'm kind of hard pressed to find anything more emblematic of the rift that we currently see in the Democratic caucus than what we saw on your committee with the prescription drug legislation. So for the audience, the bill passed the House in 2019, but it was it did not pass a committee vote. Um, so because it didn't pass a committee vote, and you had three moderates vote against it. Is it still fair to say that redu reducing prescription drug prices for all Americans is a top priority for Democrats? And, and how do you walk us through um, Democrats voting against this measure that did pass that? So um, there are pieces of H.R. 3, which is what I'm assuming you were referring to, uh, that were considered in both the Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee as part of the Build Back Better agenda. The bill did pass in Ways and Means uh, and therefore proceeded forward uh, in the Build Back Better agenda that passed the Budget Committee last Saturday. Um, I, I, you know, people can, you know, legislation is people coming together, people having different approaches. Uh, Scott Peters, who was one of the three represents, uh, has constituents. He is working very hard to reach compromise because I, I have to tell you, I, I think the cost of prescription drugs is one of the most serious issues we face in this country. You know, we've talked about the cost of insulin. We've talked about the cost of EpiPens. One of the things I walk around now with is inhalers because I was at a town hall and a mother who was working two jobs, single mother, two children, child had asthma. She was working two jobs and still below the poverty line. And the inhaler that her child needed is $800. And, and I went to a clinic 
shortly after that, and they told me that was the most difficult uh, drug for them to get and to pay for. I just, and I actually got into some pretty intense discussions myself last year when we were doing this bill about what would be the drugs that Medicare would be able to negotiate the prices of, and how do you make sure we're taking care of asthma inhalers like we are insulin and a number of other drugs that are the more commonly taken drugs in this country. You know, that's what legislating is. It's listening to different perspectives. It's finding where you can compromise. We did last year, and I think we will again before this bill passes the Congress. On that note, I do want to get into climate change, Congresswoman. This is one of your big issues, as well as the caucus. Um, what is in either of these bills, I think you may have touched on something earlier, that can help address climate change, create jobs for Michiganders and all Americans, and also something, though, that the West Virginia senator who comes from a coal state would also support? Is there anything that... Well, Joe Manchin and I have had talks about electric vehicles. He uh, is very concerned that um, we will have a difficult time getting permits for minerals that will need to be used in batteries. Uh, we had some honest conversations about how you build out the infrastructure and should the government be supporting it or should it be the private sector? I think it's got to be a combination of both. Uh, but he has made it very clear to me he's not opposed to uh, electric vehicles. Uh, how we get there, there may be some disagreement in. But, you know, even in the uh, BIF, bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, there were some people that didn't want anything in there on electric vehicles. And it was included. They're not enough. It's not enough to build out. That's what the legislative process is. You talk through, you try to, and I'm trying to find the common ground. I don't know how anybody can say global climate change isn't real. When you look at the hurricanes and the floods and the fires that we have in this country and doing nothing is just not, it's not acceptable. It's just, it's clearly unacceptable. I'm obviously, because I'm an auto state, really focused on EVs, but by the way, to support EVs, but just in this country, to build, Michigan's had so many rainstorms this year. Our utilities, are, our people are losing their electricity all of the time. Our power grid needs to be upgraded by 50%. And we need to, now Joe Manchin doesn't agree that he wants to give up coal, but he does know that we've got to use uh, other resources and that solar and uh, and wind are some of the uh, some of what is going to help power us in the future. And we can have some very tough discussions. We do have some very tough discussions, but he knows it's real. He's protecting his state. I'm protecting mine, but we got a responsibility to protect our country and no action is not acceptable. We Global climate is real. We are paying the price and we have to take action. So you just mentioned some of the challenges uh, from retelling us uh, part of your conversation with Senator Manchin of switching over to electric vehicles like the minerals needed from batteries. I I'm sure that they kind of 
also present other different challenges, but also opportunities. You come from a district with a lot of domestic manufacturing. I'm sure you've spoken to a few manufacturers uh, as part of your research on what needs to be done and how to address the economy in this legislation. Um, what do they see in these packages, like or the goal of switching everything over to electric vehicles? What obstacles do they see, and what are either in these packages that help domestic manufacturing, or what pieces of legislation are you working on to boost domestic manufacturing to not only help us meet our needs from switching over to EVs, but also help us compete with and beat the CC? Well, uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this whole entire subject. I mean, uh, let me do EVs, and then I'm going to tell you how we have to bring our supply chain back to this country. Actually, one of the biggest issues facing us, not on even climate, but it is one of the factors, is the fact that our supply chain has been located overseas. We've become way too strongly dependent. It is a national security issue on foreign countries. And so right now, even as we're having this discussion, plants, auto plants across this country are closed because we do not have chips uh, 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 in this to be able to build the cars. So UAW workers are on layoff. The companies are not going to make the profits that they want uh, or have the money that they need to invest in some of the R&D because we aren't building chips here and we have got to bring that production back to this country. But we also saw it on the pandemic when we saw the lack of PPE equipment. And even then, when we were bringing masks and um and gowns and gloves from China. They were substandard. They weren't, we got to keep that manufacturing capability in this country. We need to bring it back. And when we do do that, we create jobs. So actually that was going to be my second subject, but it's my first subject. And I do believe that bringing, I'm introducing legislation shortly again, uh, or new legislation to help bring that supply chain back and support things that need to happen on it. But go, let's go to EVs for a minute. I tell people there's three buckets for EVs to be successful in this country. One is they've got to be affordable. Uh, I'm not going to name, get in trouble naming any of the vehicles now, but most of the vehicles on the road, many think that are especially uh, are completely uh, battery dependent are luxury vehicles and most people can't afford it. Uh, so we need to make them affordable, which we will do as we increase production, etc. And at the moment, the companies are asking for tax incentives to help uh, for the initial period of that. Two, we have to create a battery. We have to have a battery that has distance that people have confidence in will have the distance. We have to develop the minerals here, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And we have to build them here in the United States of America. We, right now, China is producing 80% of the batteries and the minerals. Unacceptable, and we got to bring it back here. And you see the um, auto companies are building battery plants, are announcing where they're locating them. And I've got, you know, Senator Joe Manchin's a friend of mine. He says, we'll never get these, we'll never get permits. Well, I said, Joe, we can't, that's not acceptable. That's a national security issue, too. So, Let's work together. So I went to some of my friends from California, et cetera, that are on Natural Resources Committee with me and said, okay, we got to work with the environmentalists. So we're going to be able to develop these and mine these minerals and do them in a way that is environmental friendly, but is going to give us 
the capacity to build these batteries. We can't be dependent on uh, other countries the way that we are. So that's the second bucket, the whole battery bucket. And third, we have to build out the electric infrastructure so that they're charging stations across the country and people know they're going to have the ability to recharge their vehicle. But then our power grid is a vulnerability for us right now. It needs to be upgraded, it needs to be strengthened, and it needs to be protected. And you, you know how we do that, there are some issues connected with it, but we need to be able to agree on that because all of those issues are national security issues. And the last thing I say to people is people need to know it's real. So I invited the president when Ford unveiled the, F, the F-150 truck in April, I said, come when they unveil their the most popular vehicle that's sold in this country is a big pickup truck. And this truck's going to have all the performance. As a matter of fact, it's uh, it's got such performance that if the electricity goes out like it did in Texas, it can actually charge your home for three days. And we need people to say that this is it's not a fruitful car. It's a real vehicle that has performance and what people want. That's an example of what we have to do to make this real in support. Fantastic. So I have one last question for you, and I have to ask it because you're also on the House Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, along with being a whip. So you deal with actually getting the sausage made. Uh, your hands must be very dirty. Um, but on that note, um, the climate change activists tend to focus on the existential threat it presents, along with a moral imperative to act. Congresswoman, you know, we are extremely divided as a nation. I mean, you were there for January 6th. I don't need to tell you that. Um, and you also know that many people don't respond to a moral argument regarding policy. Just look at COVID-19 vaccines, masks. How should climate change be messaged? What do our representatives respond to that would make them take up this issue with well, I think you're seeing more and more people understand it as we look at these dramatic weather patterns that we have in this country that are in, in the world. So I think more people are, are coming to the table. You know, last year I uh, told people that I was going to bring, you know, a lot of workers. I've told everybody to lose the word green jobs. Green job to... Uh, a union worker right now means my job is going away and my new job is going to pay less. It's a buzzword to them that immediately makes them fear and everybody's worried about their job and are they going to keep it and what's going to happen. The fact of the matter is, is that we, as we develop new technology, we develop new industries, we bring the supply chains back here, we are going to have good paying union jobs. And that's what we want to focus on is that you can do both. So this past year, I brought the unions to the table and the environmental groups, the UAW, the primary, as we talked about EVs, but some of the other unions that work on utilities, etc. And we talked about people really didn't understand how workers were afraid of what it meant for their jobs. And the environmentalist community is talking to them and trying to protect those jobs, create more jobs. But I think people need to communicate with each other and understand each other's perspective, hear what they're thinking. And when you bring people together, you take the time to listen. You can bring people together to bring about the change that we need. It's not easy. It's not always pretty. But if you bring people together, you can get it done. 
Yes. Now let's go to the audience. Ab, you get the first question. Max, you get the Ab, over to you. Oh, I'm here. Sorry about that. Thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you, Congresswoman uh, Dingo. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation, and, and I've been loving your answers. Um, so my question is, um, and you just mentioned it. Uh, goodness gracious, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. Ah, about um, you as a congresswoman who comes from an auto uh, auto-centric uh, district, um, there's been speculation over the years that one of the major uh I guess, uh, lobbies against high-speed rail in this country um, has been the auto lobby. Um, what would you say to that? And what do you uh, think, do you, and do you believe that in our infrastructure package that going forward, we should look to technology such as high-speed rail in order to make America less accessible and also be more environmentally um, uh, responsible? Thank you for the question. And actually, it's not just high-speed rail, it's mass transportation, period. You know, I actually would tell you this in a different life, which seems like a lifetime ago, but it was a decade ago. Uh, I worked for General Motors. I worked for General Motors for three decades. And uh, I worked with many of the community-based groups, and they were, quite frankly, Michigan really is woefully, does not have the kind of mass transportation that we need to have. And they came in ready for a fight. And I had all three companies together and we were all very supportive because we got to get our employees to work. We have to, people need to, I mean, the ability to get around Southeast Michigan is really very sad. So I, I don't know what happened in the 20s and 30s. You get different reports and different stories. But it is a way, even in the meeting today with uh, President Biden that I was in, he talked about why he's such a strong supporter of Amtrak, because if you get people on Amtrak, they're not driving cars. We get vehicles off the road. And I, I think everybody understands that we have really got to reduce carbon emissions and transportation is one of the single biggest contributors. So we need to make cleaner vehicles and where we can be efficient in providing mass transportation, giving people an ability to get from their homes to their jobs. And I, I'm, well, I've am i been trying to get high-speed rail from Detroit to Chicago. It shouldn't be that hard, but it's like almost impossible. Uh, so I'm a strong supporter of it. I never give up, and you keep pushing. We need it from D.C. to Boston, my home area as well. Um, on that note, we will go to Max and then Mary. Max. Hi, Congresswoman. Thank you for being here. I wanted to ask about some of the strategy around uh, messaging regarding the bill. It seems like so much of the talk just has to do with the, the sticker price, that top line number of $3.5 trillion. Um, could you explain to the audience who maybe we don't understand some of the uh, legislative in, in and outs, why couldn't that be three point? Uh, or 350 billion, you know, every year, or 700 billion every two years, um, and then secondly, uh, I believe it was on maybe on Amon's show on MSNBC. Um, you said that if you had one thing that you wish that uh, the Democrats had been able to do better, it was um, really from the White House to make clear to you guys exactly where they stood. I was wondering if you could just be a bit more specific. Was that where they stood on the top line number or which uh, programs that they were, you know, valuing or prioritizing the most? Thanks. 
thank you for that question. I think I'll start with the last question and go to the other. Um, I did it on way too early on Wednesday morning, which is probably way too early to, um, I'm, I'm one of those people when I worked before I moved into this, I used to be in my office by five 30 in the morning. So I'm a morning person and people know that they can get me. And I think Democrats have been united that failure is not an option. It is simply not an option. Different people have had different perspectives and it was not clear last week, uh, what exactly the president wanted. Did he want the separate vote on the Biff bill? Uh, what it, it, I just, and plus I think there were, there were discussions with a few people and not a broader group. The president made it very clear on Friday what he wants, and it actually takes us into uh, the next part of your question. The president came to the Democratic caucus, uh, it, it told people that we it, his vision, the Build Back Better vision is what he campaigned on, and both of these bills combined are the vision that he has promised the American people. And we need to deliver. Some place between the two senators and the media and other people, people became focused on the number. The president was very clear on Friday. Again, I was in a meeting with him with several of my colleagues today, and he very much took this tact. He said on Friday, don't talk to me about numbers. Tell me what the programs are that you want. What are your priorities? What are the people in your district asking for? And when we met with him today, trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to get to where we need to go? He said, don't talk to me about numbers. What are the priorities? What are the programs that you need? And that's where we got to focus first. What can we get done? What part of the Build Back Better is the most important programs to deliver on? What do we need to start them and make them a success will be the next question and then you get to where you are in numbers. But we need to talk to my colleagues tonight about it right before I got on this podcast. We need to be talking about the programs. Everybody, and I'm actually going to blame the media a little for this. Everybody became so focused on the 3.5 and nobody was talking about what was in these bills. And it's actually what's in these bills, what people want, what they want to see. And hopefully my colleagues are going to be talking about this a lot in the next couple of weeks so people know what the BIF is or what the BBB is. They actually know what we, what the president promised when he campaigned uh, and when he got elected to deliver for the American people. And our job is to now deliver it to the American people. Thank you for those questions, Max. We will go to Mary and then Donna. Mary. Hi. Um, hi, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for, for coming on this um, podcast. Um, so my question is regarding affordable housing within the $3.5 trillion bill. Um, I wanted to mention, I noticed, I know that they're still not sure if it will pass um, in its current dollar amount or if there will be a decrease. And my question and concern is that if there will be a decrease from the $3.5 trillion bill that housing and affordable housing may very well be hit. Uh, as we know, currently in the bill, there's 90, what, $90 billion, I believe, for uh, affordable housing programs such as uh, vouchers, and then there are $80 billion for public housing and so forth. So what can you and your colleagues do to ensure that housing is still on the table should this bill take a bit of a decrease in, in uh, a dollar amount before it passes? 
Thanks so much. So thank you for the question. So let me be clear about what the president has said and what the two senators have said and what the reality is of the politics, which is we have a 50-50 Senate. We need those votes. By the way, when you have a 50-50 Senate and where we have the filibuster, uh, unless you're doing reconciliation, which is a very tight process, uh, dependent upon by the bird rule, uh, it's the one way you can get things through the Senate with a simple majority. 3.5 is not going to pass the Senate. So the president was blunt about that on Friday. He was blunt about that today. What was not agreed upon was, or really even focused on, was what the number would be, what the programs are that are the priorities for people in their districts that we've got to deliver is where the discussion is. Certainly housing uh, was brought up. Uh, It's a priority for many of the members, how we're going to get there, what we're going to be able to do. That question's happening on all these different programs. So... The reality is we're not going to get 3.5. But, you know, we also need to look at the amount of money that was passed for the American Recovery Act. The uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill is $1.2 trillion. And I think almost certainly that, you know, we'll be someplace between $2 trillion and $3 trillion, probably not closer to $3 trillion. That's a lot of money. It is the biggest investment that has ever happened in this country, in our history. And, you know, people, when Social Security passed, which was totally altering for seniors, it didn't cover a lot of what was covered now. I I mean, I I actually, it was my father-in-law that was one of the sponsors, one of the authors of Social Security. And he immediately passed universal, introduced, not passed, I'm still fighting for it, introduced universal health care. It took from the early 40s to 1965 to get Medicare. And then after Medicare, we got the Children's Health Insurance Program. So we're not going to get the, we're not going to get everything we want. That's just a reality. But what is it we want to get? You got to fight for it. We got to make sure that the critical programs are in there. And then you keep, I'm never going to give up for, I just think every American's got a right to health care. I believe in Medicare. I'm the author of Medicare for All in the House. I think that when you're sick, you should be able to go to the doctor and afford your medicine. If you need surgery, have it. If you got to have a chemotherapy or whatever the procedure is, you should be able to get it. We're getting there. We can you. Progress is sometimes slower than we want it to be, but you don't give up. You don't take your eyes off where you're trying to get and you stay tenacious and keep fighting for it. I think everybody knows how important the housing issues are in this country. They're really critical. I don't know. I really I'm because I do have I do have I've, I have actually authored several of the provisions in Build Back Better. I have been more focused on those aspects because housing's not in either of the committees that I'm on either. But I know it's a priority for many people. 
Thank you for that question, Mary. And I think the bill is 2,400 pages and legislative text is not like reading Harry Potter. It's really darn hard. Um, so I did want to explain that to the audience. We will go to Donna and then we will go to Tom. Donna. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, Representative Dingle. Um, I've lived in many states in this country, and there's so much need of infrastructure from healthcare to railroads to bridges all throughout the nation. And I agree wholeheartedly with you when you say, quote, failure is not an option, end quote. So my question to you is, what are the what are some other ways um, that um, you can begin to bridge the disconnect between the public support and also the public need uh, for this um, infrastructure uh, with uh, but also between the need actions? Thank you. I didn't quite you cut out at the end um, of the question, but. I would tell all of you that what it, whatever it is that's your priority that you care about, become active in your community. Engage. Uh, make sure you're talking to your elected officials right now. Make sure you're calling your member of Congress, your senator, and saying this really matters. Organize a group. Host it. You know, COVID's made it harder Um to do things that we would normally do. I'm probably out and about more than I should, but I always wear my mask. Uh, but, you know, organize a town hall and invite them to come. Also talk about it. Thank them when they are fighting for you. Make sure you're, you know, get on the radio, write op-eds, send letters to the editors, get on social media, tell the truth, use facts. I can't stand all these lies on social media, but use all the tools that are there for you to champion what you think is important and communicate with your elected representative. And, you know, every now and then, give them an attaboy. You don't know at the beginning of this when you all didn't realize I was on, that meant more to me today because I get people yelling at me all the time. And just somebody saying, hey, thank you for fighting for this. We appreciate it means more than you'll ever know. We will go to uh, Tom, and then we will go to Amit. Tom? Hey, Justin. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Congresswoman Dingle, for, for joining us uh, this evening. Um, I'm from uh, across the aisle, but I always love talking with everyone and lurk, uh, looking for ways to work together. Uh, I, I know you mentioned high-speed rail. We're lucky enough in Texas to be building one um, ourselves with private money. But I wanted to ask you an energy question. Uh, we know that natural gas prices are up in the UK, 500%. Electricity prices are up. And uh, many countries, including China, are, are trying to stock up on their supplies as we enter into the wintertime. Um, there was also a study by The Lancet that was just released in July that says 4.5 million people die every year from hypothermia. So my question uh, centers around the energy crisis that, that seems to be impending and coming. And uh, it seems to be that the, that the bipartisan consensus here on Clubhouse, every time I have discussions in either oil, oil and gas club or even here sometimes with Justin, is that nuclear power is something everyone agrees upon on both sides of the aisle. And we need more of it here in America. And so my question to you, Congresswoman, is how do we change the regulations in America so we can build these facilities in five to six years so investors will flood the market 
and invest in nuclear in America because they can get a return on their money in a decent amount of time. And uh, we, we can have all this job creation. We, we can replace our coal and uh, maybe even natural gas uh, power generation with much cleaner nuclear uh, and enter into a new era where we can be even more uh, competent than China. Right now, China seems to be entering that part of the race with coal and with nuclear. So how do we get into the nuclear game big time and uh, create a lot more energy independence is my question to you. Thank you so much for joining So thank you for that question. You know, one of the most interesting trips I took uh, was oh, probably a decade ago now, but I did a tour of nuclear facilities around the world. Um, and yes, I actually was in Chernobyl in the um, uh, place that melted down. And I, I think that the biggest problem facing us, in uh, we have a nuclear energy plant for me and used to be uh, in the district and now borders it, uh, that people, I mean, it's, it, it's been a good steady source of uh, utility power in Michigan, but people are afraid of nuclear power. They uh, have both the fear of the environmental issues, the health issues. What if it's not, uh, what if something bad happens like it did at Chernobyl? And we haven't figured out how to deal with nuclear waste in this country. We continue to um, still have problems about uh, where we're going to put it and what we're going to do about it. We certainly, I mean, I have to say to you all that I've been, one of Canada is dealing with this issue too and wanted to build a storage uh, container for nuclear waste in the Great Lakes. And I've been one of the leaders in the Congress that says, no way, that's all we need is that kind of spill into the Great Lakes and what that would do to the largest freshwater supply in the world. So I think we got to figure out the safety issues and the psychology of people's fear about nuclear energy. And if we ever get that figured out, it'll be a lot easier to deal with is it really something that people will trust for the future? So I, I, I think about it a lot. It's a very complicated issue. But one of the reasons it is complicated is because people fear its potential health consequences and environmental consequences. So I'm going to ask you a follow-up that's a little bit less difficult. Have you seen the HBO documentary, uh, the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, Congress? You know, I have not. I know I need to. I've studied a lot before I went to Chernobyl, but um, it's a really good when you're on a flight or, you know, driving around your district doing town halls, pop it in. I think you'll like it having been there. So I just wanted to plug it for you. Um, so we will go to uh, Amit and then we will go to Rob. Thanks, Justin. Hi, Congresswoman. It's great to see you here. Uh, I'm a native Ann Arborite. I haven't lived there in forever, so never had a chance to be a constituent, but um, great to see you um, representing Southeast Michigan. So today in the news and recently, there's been a lot of talk about the promise of Ford and GM and the future of um, autos. And um, there's also a lot of excitement around Tesla that released um, earnings and Rivian is planning, uh, rumored, uh, to be going public soon at a massive, gigantic valuation. Uh, Rivian is another electric automaker, for those who don't know. Um, so regarding jobs around electric vehicles, which is something I studied extensively at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, 
Um, is it what is the policy looking like right now to encourage that just becoming more adoptable for everyday Americans? And also, is it important to keep those jobs in Southeast Michigan? What are we doing for that? Thank you. Well, I, the fact of the matter is, is that Ford just made a major $7 billion announcement last week that it would be building a new uh, assembly plant, uh, two facilities, one in uh, Tennessee and one in Kentucky. You know, this gets really complicated because, um, and I'm, I'm trying to be objective about all of it because I very much want to see these battery plants being built in Michigan. Uh, But when the Tennessee Valley Authority is getting subsidized by the federal government, its utility rates are far lower than, say, utility rates in Michigan, which is a competitive issue um, for us. But it I mean, it's an exciting time. But and we do need to bring our supply chain. So you are seeing uh, earlier, late last year, I'm losing track of time. LG announced that it was building a battery plant for Motor Company is building a battery campus in Romulus, Michigan. Uh, uh, they've upped their investment in my district in the Rouge plant. General Motors uh, is looking to build an additional two um, battery plants. And we're going to see more battery plants being built around this country. So that is a good source of jobs in this country. Now, Some people were saying that as you transfer from an internal combustion engine to an EV, it'll be less jobs, but we're now seeing studies that show that they're different jobs. We have to make sure that we're training our workforce. Um, But what I want to do is bring our supply chain back to this country. I'm obviously Michigan-centered, so I want all those jobs to stay in Michigan, and I've been pretty uh, intense in the last year and last few weeks about what's it going to take to keep Michigan competitive. And you get into these bidding wars between states on incentives and a lot of other issues. So it's a very complicated issue. First and foremost, we need to bring jobs home here. We need to pay a decent wage. We're competing with countries that don't pay a decent wage, don't have the same kind of quality standards we do, or provide the same benefits like health care and secure retirement. But we're suddenly realizing this has become a national security issue. And I think that for the vehicle of the future, you're going to see the supply chain come back. You're going to see chips built in this country. You're going to see the battery built in this country with good paying union jobs. And we got to focus on that. So I'm okay if they're built in America. I'm really happy if they're built in Michigan. There we go. So our last question of the night is going to go to Robin. Robin. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Congresswoman Dingell, I'm, I'm native to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, also worked as an engineer at General Motors Research Labs back in the day. But um, now I work on China. And so my question is, to what extent... Um, are these discussions on Biden's agenda around the climate um, engaging the idea of China as a competitor? And to what extent are the, does under, is it understood as more of a um, global issue that needs cooperation? Thanks. Uh, it's a, it, first of all, China is a competitor. China is somebody we need to take seriously. 
uh, we, they are stealing our intellectual property. I'm probably going to get in trouble if I were to name all the things that um, uh, we need to take very seriously about what's happening in China. And I do think that all levels of government and all parties of government understand the competitive issue for us uh, with China on so many fronts. So I will say that um, with the Senate's already passed a bill uh, on competing to competing with China. We need to be doing the same in the House. It won't happen until after we finish this Build Back Better, but it's absolutely critical. At the same time as the United Nations is developing the global strategy on climate change, uh, I you know, for a long time, and if any of you visited China, it's absolutely horrific. I made my first trip in the early 80s. And then, I mean, the you just the air was just total gray. Uh, it was uh, horrific. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of development in China. They are a world power that we need to take seriously, and they need to be held accountable on when we talk about world standards in addressing global climate. I'm not willing to accept China as an underdeveloped country or, you know, it's got problems. They need to be held accountable and they need to be coming to the table and they need to be part of addressing global climate change. Thank you very much, Congresswoman. I agree wholeheartedly with your feelings on the CCP government and their climate change issue. I guess before we, uh, you leave us and maybe grab a meal, um, do you have anything that you want to leave the audience with? Well, it, it, it's great to talk to everybody tonight. Um, but I guess I would say to everybody, and what's great about uh, this is that you have people on all sides of issues. And one of the things I'm really worried about in this country is the fear and the hatred that's dividing us. And I really worry about our democracy and how much of what's happening is eating away the pillars of our democracy. So I would ask everybody to think about civility, about treating each other with respect, listening to different points of views, uh, getting other people's perspective because it's really healthy. You can learn from other people and that we really need to worry about civil discourse and the division in this country and how we can all work together to learn from each other. We can disagree agreeably, but I think civility really matters. And it's something I take very seriously and I'm worried about in this country. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Congresswoman Dingell for coming out, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live or pm101.club. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.